0: Why does in town exist? Maybe it might be the most uh, ambitious sermon title I've ever had. Uh, there's no way that we're going to fully answer that uh, this morning, or even in a series of sermons. And uh, this passage, as Catherine was reading, I'm sure that you could um, tell that we're not going to cover everything in that passage, but. I do wanna sort of set up our discussion uh, after the service or maybe better said the feedback that we as leaders will receive from you guys as we try to move into sort of a new phase or at least hopefully moving into a time where life gets a little bit back closer to, uh, to normal and uh, asking again, why does Zen Town exist? And I want to introduce this by way of a quote. Um, William Cavanaugh is a professor at DePaul, and he writes about sort of the, the power of mythology and um, imagination as a motivator to behavior, uh, the sociology of motivation. And he wrote a book called The Theopolitical Imagination. And in it, he talks about the complexity of the motivation for, for example, a, a citizen to be so connected to their national identity that they would willingly lay down their lives in a battle halfway across the world. And he asked, how does a provincial farm boy become persuaded that he must travel as a soldier to another part of the world and kill people that he knows nothing about? That's a weighty question he argues that this farm boy doesn't sign up for an idea, a concept. He doesn't fly across the world ready to kill someone because of something he knows, but because of something that he loves. Not an idea, but an ideal. And he's willing to fight for ideals that may not even align with his own individual interests in the case uh, that would be uh, dying on the field of battle. But he does so, he's willing to take that risk because he's been conscripted into a mythology. And this mythology, this story, supersedes his own story. This story he believes in, not just in his intellect, but in his heart and in his imagination. And this imagination is so powerful that he's willing to fight and potentially die. Now, we all have stories that we live by, and they have symbolism, they have signs, they have liturgy, even secular stories, and we find our way in the world by these stories. Now, the the Christian offer of salvation, the story of salvation, it's an invitation to switch stories and therefore to change the very nature of our lives, The Israelites that we read about in this passage know that they are God's people. They know that they've been rescued out of slavery. But God wants something more than that, more than just a knowledge of factual things. But he wants to capture their hearts. He wants to capture them with a story, by capturing their imagination, by telling them of a love that precedes all others. This passage takes place at Mount Sinai, an incredibly important place an event in Israel's history. Mount Sinai is where God meets with Moses, the, the leader of Israel, and the people spend approximately a year uh, camped beneath this mountain. And in the biblical narrative, if you read it, Uh, Israel is there for 59 chapters all the way to Numbers chapter 10. In other words, this is a defining moment for Israel where they are told why they exist and why they have been rescued in the first place and for what purpose they are now to live. And it seems to me that as we begin hopefully, cautiously, tentatively to think about the next chapter of in of intown outside the confines of covid that it's it's a good question that we should ask today and maybe continually ask why does intown exist? why would you be a part of this community now moses comes down and answer this in answer to this question at least in that context after meeting with god on the mountain and on behalf of god he says remember Remember, I carried you on eagles' wings. In the Bible, eagles are birds that do two things or have two characteristics. One is that they they care for the weak. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, an eagle hovers over its young. It protects the weak and the vulnerable. But number two, eagles are also fierce Creatures, they're predators, and they're powerful. Eagles are both tender and they're fierce. God tenderly cares for Israel, his people, like a mother bird, but he is fiercely powerful and can act definitively to protect them. Now, Moses says, Remember in order that, remember so that you can obey. Obedience is, is not a very appealing term in our day, and for some very good reasons. But in biblical context, it's not just doing the right things in obedience to a superior, but it is finding one's center, finding one's whole being in the person of God. And God was moved to rescue them from slavery because he delights in them and he wants his people to reciprocate that same delight, that same fierce loyalty to him and to his purposes. Moses says, Remember something else. On behalf of God, remember that you are my treasured possession. We're familiar with memory as a communal motivation in our own country. Remember the Alamo, remember Pearl Harbor, remember 9-11. What is this kind of remembering meant to do? Is it remember the date? Is it remember the details of the battle? Remember that in 9/11, on 9-11, the terrorists flew their planes into a building. Well, sure, in some way that's true, but it's so much more than that. What do we do when we remember 9-11? We remember the way that we felt. We remember the emotions of the day. We remember that sense of injustice. Remember the sorrow over the victims. Remember the commitments that we made as a nation in that moment, now that that moment has passed. Remembering is a renewal of imagination. God is telling Moses to tell the people remember what it was like to be rescued. Remember what it was like to be slaves and to have no hope at all. Remember a world where God's love reached into that situation, where He remembered his covenant with you, that you were his treasured possession. And let that be your identity. Let that be your centering truth. And I guess it's incumbent upon us to ask, in the same way that Israel is being tasked to ask, what would it look like for in-town? If in-town was a community of people whose dominant memory that drives our collected lives, is that, is that of God intervening in this world, not as an act of imperialism, but one of loving, tender, but fierce rescue. And what would remembering that, or that set of things, what would remembering that look like in our church? How would it change the way that we thought about Our individual relationship with the church community? How would that change our communal priorities? How would that change the way that we see our neighbor and our neighborhoods and our calling as a church? How would that change the way that we might long for other people to have this same sort of imagination, this same sort of encounter with God's fierce? Protective love. If it has changed us, if it has set us free, then wouldn't we want to invite other people to have that same experience, to help people in a proactive way to get to the place where the dominant image that drives their life is what God has done for them in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, believing that they too are God's treasured possession. Now, the second thing that Moses tells Israel is that this is a story of a people rather than persons. This is a story of a people. It's a story of a community, of a nation, rather than just individual persons. God rescued a community, not individuals. And he is commissioning us all as a community to mediate God's presence to the world around us. As it's described to Israel, it's a community that is both moral as well as missional. Now, the community first is moral. This is a so that story that frames the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter two that are sort of inserted within the in the middle of those three passages that we read. This is a so that story, the remember the slavery, remember God's rescue, so that. And the Ten Commandments outline the way that they are to live in the world. They are to be a community that values faithfulness, a community that values honesty, a community that does justice to the poor and the outcast and to refugees, that they are to be a community that cultivates souls at rest. That there to be a community that cultivates peace within families, a community that cultivates sexual integrity, a community that is content. Why? Why does God give this particular list and then expands it in other places throughout the Bible? Well, these commands are not just busy work, they're not just symbolic. This list is given because. They are God's treasured possession. In other words, God is saying to them, I made you and I love you and I know what you need and what is best for you. And then he goes on to describe this list of commandments, which should be seen less as a a chart of tasks and more a description of a life of flourishing and a life of contentment. This is how I want you to live, God is saying. And it is not so that they will be loved, but it is because they already are loved. They are moral. It is a moral community, or what Moses says, a holy nation set apart in love with God. But it's not only a moral community, it is a missional one, a kingdom of priests, Now what do priests do? Priests help people find their way to God. They mediate the presence of God into situations where he appears to be absent. They tell the story behind the story that we're currently living. God's covenant with Moses wasn't to create, in other words, a community that is sort of walled off from the world that is set apart in terms of location but set apart in terms of purpose mediating his presence to the nations later in israel's history the the prophet isaiah tells them it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of jacob i will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It is too small a thing just to be a community, even if you serve your life toward God. It is too small of a thing just to restore the nation of Israel. What I want you to do is to mediate my presence to the nations, to the ends of the earth. It is too small a thing for you to be just a moral community you have a mission to make me known now this passage this isaiah passage is picked up by the apostle peter centuries later as he is commissioning the the fledgling church in acts so it's not a stretch for us to find our direction and our charter in these words that we could say with some confidence that in town exists To be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, a community whose character is shaped by the presence of the living God, which extends itself so that others can find their way to God. Now, that's a beautiful picture. but That's not the experience of the church that many, if not most of us, have. Generally speaking, the church is recognition of its own holiness has an inverse relationship with its love and care for other people. Stella, would you mind? (laughs) My dog is just going nuts over here. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's driving me crazy. Generally speaking, a church's recognition of its own holiness has an inverse relationship with its love and care for other people. Often, our perceived good behavior turns us, turns churches inward and makes us, it makes community stuffy and judgmental and holier than thou rather than holy. When we talk about a holy nation, we're not talking first about personal piety, but about a community that is giving itself up for the world that is sacrificing so that others can find their way to God, that is radically committed to the character and the servant heart of God, so much that their character becomes attractive. It it becomes compelling rather than repulsive. Have we experienced in our lives a holiness that is invitational? Probably few of us have. Now, Matthew Paris, I will just share this final story with you as we close. He's a journalist, he's also an atheist, and he writes uh, in one particular article about his experience visiting a charity run by Christians in Africa, and it's called Pump Aid. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install just a simple pump, a well, letting People keep their village wells sealed and clean and functional. And he goes to see this work and visits uh, these pumps across uh, parts of Africa, particularly in Malawi. And he says, it inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities, but traveling to Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has, get this, has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of many secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone, this atheist journalist says, will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package, but Christians, both black and white, working in Africa do heal the sick. They do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or a school and say that the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts, he says. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to the flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. And he cites Africans converting to what to them is white Western religion. And we all know of the terrible political and economic legacy of white cultural superiority asserting itself in Africa under the guise of Christianity. But ultimately, Matthew Paris finds far from having cowed or confirmed its converts, Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, and a directness in their dealings with others. Their conversion, their encounter with Jesus made them soft and curious, holy but loving. They began to live as God's people in such a way that even the most committed atheist was at least perplexed and curiously drawn to them. Is there anything that Portland could need more than churches that are made up of people who are soft and curious and at rest in all the right ways, but yet agitated to help and to serve? Churches that were holy and yet loving and welcoming. What if in town existed to be a community that lived unto God, that considered obedience a serious thing, and yet our obedience didn't create boundaries, but it in fact moves us into the world with love and grace, inviting people to consider what it would be like to be loved by and cared for by god to be his treasured possession has that captured your imagination yet does that stir your heart well let's talk about it after the service and let's first pray father god i do pray that you would make us to be a holy nation a kingdom of priests make us to be people alive unto you and alive with your gospel and God I pray that you would be with us as we spend time uh, discussing or at least listening to your community that you've gathered under the name of intown and what uh, this community would want to see happen would want to be a part of would want to engage in in the coming uh, days and weeks and months and father we pray that we would be a community that, brings you a continual delight, and that we would continually delight in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.